Welcome to the Schwartz on Sports podcast, hosted by Noah Schwartz. Hey everyone, welcome back to SOS, episode number 13 of the podcast, presented by the Belly Up Podcast Network. Happy New Year, everyone. I want to wish you a happy and healthy 2021. 2020 was obviously a really tough year for so many people, and I'm hoping that this year can be uh, just far better in so many different ways. Now, I just want to say that I'm recording this on Thursday afternoon, and I was planning on doing an episode yesterday. I was planning on on recording this the day before. Uh, But unfortunately, yesterday, as you guys probably all know, uh, America suffered one of its worst days, its darkest days in recent memory with the horrible riots where so many people attacked and got inside the Capitol building. And it was terrifying to watch on television, and it was just a really rough day to be an American. So I didn't want to do the episode yesterday, uh, and I didn't want to do it just out of respect for what was going on. But today I'm back. I'll do the episode. We're going to talk some baseball uh, with the big Mets trade today. I'm very excited about my new star shortstop in Queens. Definitely talk about the NFL and the wildcard weekend coming up. So we'll get to all of that. But I just wanted to say, I'm not going to get to it into a topic today, but I just wanted to say um, I stand with everybody who was against those riders yesterday, and it, it was a rough day. It was, it was hard to watch. So let's cover some sports. It's much more entertaining to talk about sports than anything that's going on in that political realm. So let's get right to it. Uh, on to baseball. So Francisco Lindor, superstar shortstop, Carlos Carrasco, excellent pitcher, coming to the New York Mets today in exchange for... I would say a significant haul, but at the same time, it wasn't to the extent of where I thought the Mets were giving up too much where it wasn't worth it. And so let me explain. So the Mets gave up Ahmed Rosario, excellent young shortstop, Andres Jimenez, another excellent young shortstop, Josh Wolf, who was a nice young pitching prospect, and then another prospect who's a relatively highly rated in the Mets system. So four pros- two prospects, two established big leaguers, for Carrasco, former all-star pitcher, uh, and then Lindor, one of the best players in the game. And so it really wasn't, to me, um, too much for the Mets to give up. This is the type of player in Lindor that you sacrifice a lot to get. This guy's a 27-year-old shortstop. He's right in his prime. He is one of the best 10 players in the game. And I looked up his numbers just to see how excellent they were. Let me read some of these off to you, just so you guys get a clear idea of how, how important this is for the Mets. So in Lindor's rookie year, he's had six full seasons, started in 2015. His rookie year was second in rookie of the year voting. From then on, he was ninth in MVP and an all-star, fifth in MVP, another all-star, sixth in MVP, another all-star, 15th in MVP, another all-star, and then 2020 was the shortened season where he struggled a little bit, hit like 260, uh, drove in like 30 runs, but he wasn't great in 2020, but it was a short season, whatever. So in this guy's career... Rookie, second and rookie of the year, a bunch of all-star appearances, a bunch of MVP, fin- or relatively high MVP finishes. He is truly sensational. He's great on defense. He's even better on offense, and he is going to help the Mets significantly. And this is really the first giant building block that Steve Cohen, the new Mets owner, has acquired and put on this roster uh, to, in order to, to make this team far better than it was. And, of course, we know the story. 2015, World Series. 2016, Wild Card. And since then, a bunch of seasons where nothing's really happened. They haven't made the playoffs. They've only had a winning winning record one time. 
this team needed a, a reboot, it needed a boost, and Frankie Lindor is the type of guy who can do that for you. He brings energy, he brings enthusiasm, he brings a smile, he's charismatic, the media loves him, he's well-liked by everyone around the game, he's just one of the most fun players you will find, and he's also just incredibly talented. So, this is huge for the Mets. And for Cleveland, okay, they knock off some salary. They knock off like $40 million off their off their books this year. We knew they couldn't afford Lindor. We knew that he was going to get traded. And this was just how can we how can we do it and get the best return possible. And so Lindor is technically going to be a rental for the Mets. He's, he's going to be a free agent at the end of 2021. But when you have a guy that's this good and this young and is in a trade like this, typically, we've seen this before, Mookie Betts is, a, is a one example, usually they'll sign an extension prior to their final season uh, under their rookie deal, and they will never hit for agency, and they'll be that player will be with their new team forever. I mean, really, really a long time. Um, and so Betts signed a 10-year deal last year. I expect the Mets to engage Lindor on a similar contract, probably about $300 million, if I was going to guess what it might cost to keep him around for a decade or so. And he should be with the Mets for basically the remainder of his career. So you're getting a guy who is an outstanding talent, a great locker room guy, everybody loves him, and he's going to be expensive, but it's worth it. And when you have a new owner like Cohen, where he's worth 14 billion, 14 point something billion dollars, and this is a whole new era of Mets baseball starting in 2021, you want to make a splash. And there's been rumors about who the Mets would go out and grab, whether it would be in a trade or, or via free agency. There's been a discussion about George Springer. There's been discussion about Trevor Bauer. We've talked about JT Real Muto and DJ LeMahieu and, and just up and down the line. Every single person that seems to become available, the Mets have been engaged on that player. And we've, we've talked about all those rumors before. And this was the first time they had pulled the trigger. They had signed James McCann, nice catcher. They'd signed uh, Trevor May, decent reliever, but this is the big one. And so they get Lindor, and he'll be around, hopefully, a very, very long time in Queens. The the franchise player here with the Mets. And on top of it, and they basically just threw him into the trade. I was surprised by that. They get Carlos Carrasco. And Carlos Carrasco, people don't realize, Carlos Carrasco is a really, really good pitcher. I mean, really good. And he's been around a while. He's up there in age. He's 33, almost 30, almost 34. But this guy's accomplished a whole lot over the course of his career. He is, uh, he once finished fourth in Cy Young. Another year he finished 13th. Uh, he's quite good. I mean, 377 career ERA. And last year, actually, in the short season, was terrific in 12 starts, had an ERA of under three. And I think a lot of people know Carlos's story battled cancer, came back. It's been a tough road for the guy. He's had injuries. But when he's out when he's out there on the field, he's a very, very good starting pitcher. And the Mets really had a hole, a, a need for a starter, and they actually were able to accomplish it, killing two birds with one stone, getting that premier bat that they were so much looking for, and then also getting an extra pitcher for their starting rotation. He's going to slot in right behind Jacob deGrom and, and probably Marcus Stroman in what looks to be a much improved Mets rotation. Because this was not a very good pitching team last year. Really struggled. There was injuries. And this team should be a lot better. So they're going to have Jacob DeGrom, baseball's arguably the best pitcher in baseball. You'll have Stroman, who's very good. You'll have Carlos Carrasco. You'll have David Peterson, who had a really nice rookie season last year in the short year. And then you have Steven Matz. And then the big wild card is, when does Noah Syndergaard come back? Because he missed all last year with the Tommy John. He will be back 
The expectation is that he will be back at some point in 2021, maybe midway through the season or so. And if he can be the Noah Syndergaard of old and 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 look like the pitcher he once was, all of a sudden the Mets have got another ace to throw in there. And this arguably looks like the deepest and the best rotation in the National League. So I love how Sandy Alderson and Jared Porter, the Mets' uh, new front office duo, was able to not only get the premier player they were looking for, but add some depth and add somebody who they really could have used uh, to this team also. It, it, it's a really a really great trade for the Mets. And like I said, not, not a huge return um, that the Indians are getting. Not something that the Mets should really be nervous about giving up. Because Jimenez had a nice rookie year, but and even if he becomes a, a good major leaguer, he's probably never going to be Lindor. And Ahmed Rosario had a nice start to his career. Like four years has been in the big leagues already. But he's had his issues defensively. He's not a great hitter. He's more like a speed guy, a contact guy. And he'll probably never become a star, even though I do like him. And then you have a young pitcher, a Wolf, who's probably not going to contribute in 2021. And the other prospect is also not going to contribute in 2021. So this, this makes all the sense in the world for the Mets. The Mets are trying to win now, and they're trying to build a, a true contender under Steve Cohen. We all remember in his press conference, three to five years, he expects a World Series. So he, he wants to win ASAP. This is the first real move that I have seen that truly speaks to, to just how bad he wants to, to win a championship. And and so they're going to have Lindor and they're going to have Carrasco. It, it, it should be a great trade for the Mets. And, and again, the Indians wanted to cut salary, so it, it really wasn't too much about you know, keeping around a winning team. This team has done plenty of winning over the course of the last half decade, went to the World Series in 2016. This is a new era of Indians baseball as well. They're getting a name change, obviously, so you have that scandal. Uh, It's going to be a Shane Bieber-led team, the great uh, Cy Young winner from last year. Jose Ramirez is still there, but they had to give up Lindor. And the Mets just happened to be one of the only teams out there who not only could throw out enough prospects and, and establish major leaguers to make the deal work, but also... They were one of the only teams that was going to be able to keep this guy around past one year. Because when he hits free agency, only a handful of teams out there in this depressed market that could keep Lindor and sign him to a massive deal. The Mets were one of those. They pounced on this opportunity, and they're going to have him. So as a Mets fan today, I I can tell you that uh, most Mets fans, if not all Mets fans, are extremely happy. I'm extremely happy. Uh, Been a fan since 2007, and this is a a, a day unlike many other. I I remember the Ioannis Cespedes trade. I wasn't around for when they trade for Mike Piazza, but this is this is one of those types of moves. This is a move that can put you over the top in a very tough division and a tough NL. The Dodgers are great. We know how good the NL East can be when the Nationals are good and the Phillies are good and the Marlins made the playoffs last year. Atlanta's excellent, almost went to the World Series. This is a tough division. It's a tough league, but the Mets have decided to throw themselves right into the mix of one of the top teams out there. So we'll see how it all works out and how it all uh, ends up playing out for the Mets this year. But I'm happy. I think most fans are, are, are ecstatic. And I cannot wait to see Frankie Lindor and Carrasco on the field for the Mets because you got two of the better players in baseball now on your team. And there's only an opportunity for the Mets to continue to make, make additions. They can sign George Springer. There's rumors about there for them to do that. Maybe they'll add another reliever, maybe another starter somewhere. But there is a lot of opportunity for the Mets to continue to improve this offseason even after the moves they've made so far uh, highlighted by the Lindor trade today. So... Big, big, big day for the Mets, and uh, we'll talk about the NFL as soon as we're back. We'll take a quick break and then uh, talk all about Wild Card Weekend here on Schwartz on Sports.
This episode of Schwartz on Sports is brought to you by Invader Coffee. Invader Coffee is an ultra-premium, veteran-owned coffee company, proudly delivering only the best coffee your hard-earned money can buy. They aim to serve only the highest quality organic air-roasted coffee beans sourced from free trade farms all over the world. They keep things simple, the best coffee at an affordable price in order to provide you with the value you deserve for your morning boost. 100% fair trade, 100% organic coffee beans, 100% air roasted, 100% money back guarantee. Visit invadercoffee.com and enter promo code BELLYUP at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Hey all, welcome back. Schwartz on Sports, episode number 13 on the Belly Up Podcast Network. Time to talk about the NFL and Super Wild Card Weekend. Now typically I would have led the show with this. Normally uh, that's how I would have started. But with the breaking Lindor news from earlier today, considering the Mets are my favorite team, I'm a New Yorker, I figured I'd start with that and then head on to the NFL. So this is a weekend in the National Football League unlike any other that we've ever seen. Because with the expanded playoffs this year, we've never had a weekend with six playoff games. We're about to have six playoff games on Saturday and on Sunday. And shockingly, much to my surprise, we actually made it through 17 weeks of NFL football. We didn't cancel one game. Everybody played 16 games. Now, there were cancellations, that got games got pushed back, and things got delayed. I mean, it was, it was not always easy. But everybody played every single game without any permanent cancellations. And so here we are in the playoffs, ready to go. So I'm going to go through each of the six games. Typically, I call this Describe 5 when I go through each game and pick a winner. But today, I'm going to have to change it to Describe 6 because we have an extra game. Uh, two more playoff games than we typically are used to in Wildcard Weekend. But that's how it goes this year. So let's begin with the first game on Saturday between the Colts and the Bills. Now, this is a historic game for the Buffalo Bills. They have not play, played a home playoff game in a very, very long time. This is their first division title since before Tom Brady started to play quarterback for the New England Patriots. So this is really a franchise-altering moment for the Bills. And I'm super happy for Bills fans because this is the first time that they're going to have fans in the stadium. They'll have about 7,000 fans. Each of them are getting COVID tested prior to the game. They have to be negative. And the governor of New York here uh, in in our area, Andrew Cuomo, is allowing some people to go uh, into into the stadium and and, in Orchard Park. And so that'll be very, very cool, at least to get some people to see Josh Allen and this team play. Um, It's the first home playoff game in a long time. They're playing the Colts, and the Colts are 11-5. Bills won 13-3. These are two excellent teams. And this is a really intriguing matchup. So the first thing that I that I that I notice when I look at the at this at this matchup is how the way the Bills have been playing for the last two months. And Josh Allen has been an MVP candidate for a couple of months now. I mean, the way he has played historic season with the Bills, over 40 total touchdowns. They were a terrific offense. They've won all these games now. I haven't lost since the Hail Murray play against Arizona. It's really been a great year for the Bills, and they ultimately won 13 games. And so now they're playing a Colts team that, although I don't view them as a Super Bowl threat, I believe the Colts are playing their best football of the season. And the reason for that is because of Jonathan Taylor. And Taylor, it took him a while. It took, I would say, close to 12 weeks 
for him to really get a clear view of the NFL as a second-round pick running back out of Wisconsin. And since then, he has been one of the best players in the National Football League. He actually finished third in the league in rushing yards this year, despite splitting carries with other guys and not really being the workhorse back until maybe a month ago. And since then, he has just been dominant, and they're playing their best ball of the year because of him. So this is not a great passing offense. Phillip Rivers might might be his last game of his career on Sunday or on Saturday. Uh, but they're playing well because they're grounding and pounding. They're running the ball. They've got a top 10 defense under coordinator Matt Eberflus. And so I really do think there's a chance for this team to go into Buffalo and win. Now, I'm not going to pick them. I'm going to pick the Bills because of Allen and the way they have played. They scored 56 points last week against the awesome Miami Dolphins defense. So the Bills are just, to me, at another level. I think they're right now the second best team in the AFC, just slightly behind Kansas City. And I think they're going to win. This will be the first wild card, or first playoff win for the Bills in a very long time. Uh, they, they blew it last year. They had a shot against, te- against the Texans. And Deshaun Watson was just too good in the second half. Allen has played at a new level this year, something we I don't think most people thought we'd ever see out of him. And he's right in the thick of the MVP race. So I'm going to pick Buffalo slightly. And uh, that'll be it for, for Phillip Rivers and his legendary, to me, Hall of Fame career. Uh, but the Bills will win slightly just because they're a more dynamic offense with Stephon Diggs and all the other receivers they have. And despite a slightly worse defense than they had last year, I think they're, they're able to get the job done. They can force turnovers. And Tredavious White is among the best players in the game. All right, on to the second game Saturday. Uh, this game to me is by far, and I mean this, by far, the most confusing matchup. I have no idea who I really want to pick here. It's the Rams and the Seahawks, 440 Eastern uh, from Lumen Field in Seattle. Now, there are very few teams that confuse me more than these two. So I'll start with the Rams. The Rams, when they're right, look like a top three team in the NFL. They've been the number one defense most of this year. Most of this year, They've got arguably the best player outside of Patrick Mahomes in the NFL and Aaron Donald, and arguably the best corner in the NFL in Jalen Ramsey. They've got an awesome head coach in Sean McVay. They've got a dynamic running game with three backs, and Cam Akers is playing great at a Florida State rookie. They also have two awesome receivers in Cooper Cup and Robert Woods. And it's strange because despite all this talent, and they've won plenty of games, they were 10 and 6 this year. They just had some they had some Sundays where it was like, what are they doing? So they'd go and they 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 crushed the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in a primetime game. But then they lost like a month later to the Jets at home. It just it made no sense. We saw the game early in the season, pre-Tua where they got b- blown out against Miami when Miami was like 1-3. in three. It was early in the season. They weren't playing well. They had a strange year. They, they have some weeks where they look like a juggernaut and other weeks where they look lost. And so I'm not sure which one we're going to get. Now, we also don't know, and this is a, another huge part of this, is Jared Goff going to play on Sunday? And if he does play, is he going to be himself? He obviously had the the, the the surgery on his hand with the with the thumb, and we don't know if he's going to be able to throw the ball effectively. So it could very well be another start with John Wolford, the Mr. LinkedIn financial advisor um, who's played his first game last week. But even if Goff does play, is he going to be the, the, the Goff that we all like and love to see? Or the Goff that makes bad decisions, turn the ball, turns the ball over, uh, and doesn't move the football well for this team? 
We don't know. I'm not sure. But the Rams are confusing. And just as strange are the Seahawks. Now, early in the season, and, and I think a lot of fans will remember this, when Seattle was 6-0, and every single week it seemed like it was first to 50 wins because Seattle would win games 45-40. to And Russell Wilson would, would, would put up all these numbers and score a ton of touchdowns, but the defense would be just as awful, and they just squeak out a win, a high-scoring high win. And that's how they won for the first half of the year. And then what happened was Russell Wilson and the offense slightly declined, or actually you could say badly declined, and the defense got better. Jamal Adams returned from injury, and uh, they acquired Carlos Dunlap from the Bengals, pass rusher. And since then, the whole script on their season has flipped because now they're playing and they have to win close games, low-scoring games. Last week they won, uh, the game was in the low 20s. And this is how it's been a lot for them recently. And Russell Wilson has been the architect of the NFL's worst passing offense over the last three or four weeks. He's barely getting to 200 yards every single week. I mean, we've, we haven't seen anything like this from Russ before. And the numbers that DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, their two incredible wide receivers are putting up, aren't matching up to what they were doing early in the season. So they went from winning all these high-scoring close games early to now late they're winning all these low-scoring close games. And so they're 12-4, they're and four, and they did eke out a lot of tight wins. And the reason I'm going to pick the Seahawks just slightly is because they're home and because I trust Russ far more in a close game than I do Goff. You always know that when Russ has the ball late in the game, a chance to win it, most of the time he's going to come through. But he has struggled over the course of the last couple of months. We remember he was right in uh, the driver's seat in the MVP race early, and then he was lapped by Mahomes and Allen and... And Aaron Rodgers has now taken control, and Derrick Henry's right in the conversation. So it's been a weird year for Russ. He was putting up awesome numbers, and those numbers have dropped quite a bit recently. But I, I just do I just trust them. And they've played in so many big playoff games before. These are division rivals. I think it's going to be close. Uh, two good, or at least improved defenses. Definitely the Rams are great. The Seahawks have been much better. So I'm going to pick Seattle, but I don't feel good about this game. It's essentially a coin flip. All right, final game on Saturday. This is the primetime NBC game Saturday night. It's between Washington and Tampa from D.C. So obviously a really rough week in D.C. I, I, I mentioned it uh, for a couple seconds before in the beginning of the show. Uh, I honestly think that this actually helps the Washington football team, the events of the Capitol, because I think all the difficulties and struggles that they probably went through this week with what happened in their city... I think that's going to motivate them. It's going to inspire them to come out and put on a good performance and just help out the residents of that area who have obviously struggled and gone through a whole lot over the last couple of days. So I think this helps them. But the problem is this NFC's champion is far worse than pretty much any playoff team we've seen in recent history. They went 7-9 and nine for a reason. And they're playing a, a team that... I don't know if they're a Super Bowl threat, but when they're right, they look like a contender. I mean, a true contender in Tampa Bay. Um, Tampa, for all their flaws, and they have quite a few. They're not a great pass. They don't have a great pass defense. They don't always run the ball well. Um, there's been a lot of disconnect that we've seen between Arians and Brady, and a lot of drama there. When they're right, and when they're playing at their max level, they're really good, and. 
I think that the last few weeks have, have really been um, a good way for Brady and Arians to get on the same page. The schedule hasn't been too difficult. They played Atlanta a couple of times. So they were able to get out, uh, eke out some, some wins late, and that has really helped them. Brady ended up with 40 touchdown passes at 43 years old, which is one of his greatest accomplishments. He also had to do it in a new system with new receivers and a new, new plays. I mean, it, it's not easy. There was no preseason either. This is really a great year from Brady, um, but the problem is they struggled in primetime games. They lost a bunch of games. The five games they lost were all against really good teams, and and they were in big games. They lost the two, um, the two games to New Orleans. One of those was a Sunday night. The other one was the uh, Sunday Sunday afternoon Fox game of the week. They lost to the Bears, which was on a Thursday. Uh, they lost uh, a couple of the times as well. So. They, they didn't play great in primetime, and this is obviously a primetime playoff game, NBC. So we'll see how they respond to playing at night and being on the road. But I, I just think Tampa's talent is, is too much for, for Washington to have to overcome. Uh, the only thing that I could see this game being close, the only reason, is because the Washington front on their defense is so special with Chase Young, obviously, and Montez Sweat and Jonathan Allen. This, that's a great group of guys up there. And they can really help to shut down the running game. And they can get pressure on Tom Brady. And obviously, he's far less mobile than most of the other quarterbacks that are playing this weekend. So I think that's the one area where they can possibly win this game. What they'd have to really do is play a clean game, not turn the ball over. Alex Smith would have to play out of his mind. And I think they'd have to manage the clock, grind it out. Uh, A lot of Antonio Gibson, a lot of running. And they just have to keep Brady off the field and try to outscore him uh, when they have the ball for far more possessions than, or five, four more minutes than, than the Buccaneers would. Other than that, I don't see how they win. Tampa can come down and score quickly. They can go deep down the field. They have great receivers with Godwin and Antonio, and we'll see if Mike Evans plays. Uh, but I, I just I, I don't think the talent here is any is, is, is at all equitable. So I'm just gonna pick I'm gonna pick Tampa and, and go with that. Uh, on, all right, Sunday. All right, so we got two AFC games and an NFC game sandwiched in between. So first I'll go with the Ravens, um, Ravens and Titans. This is from Tennessee at 1 o'clock on ABC. This is also the uh, the game on ESPN, so you can see it on a couple different channels. So the Ravens playing their best football this year, the last five weeks. They've won their last five. They were 6-5, and five, and they have, won, uh, since, they have won out since then. And I think that... These are two teams that we're going to see where they play similar styles. They both want to run the ball. It should be a quick game. It should be a clean game. And we may get into the high 30s, possibly into the 40s between these two awesome, phenomenal offenses. So let's start with the Ravens. Lamar Jackson playing his best ball of the year, throwing the ball well, running the ball as well as he ever has. And since they had COVID and the whole deal with playing that Pittsburgh game on on a Wednesday. They've been playing with as much confidence as any team. They had that crazy win over the Browns on Monday night recently. They've won a couple of blowouts, including a game last week where Lamar basically just played the first half, and that was essentially it. Um, So I think we're going to see a Ravens team that is really motivated to come out here and win because I think a lot of people doubted them this year. They were 6-5 and five at one point. It was not clicking. And after a 14-2 and two last year, it seemed like there was some sort of number one seed hangover. Well, it hasn't lasted, and now they're 11-5 and five and playing their best. 
So I think we're going to see a great Ravens team. On the other side of it, I just think Tennessee is slightly better. And here's the reason for that. And I've said this before, and I'll say it a hundred more times. There is nobody in the NFL, and I mean nobody, in a cold weather playoff game, physical game, in the middle of January, nobody I'd rather have, even Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers, than Derrick Henry. With his strength, size, and stamina, there's nobody that plays in this league like him. Because the more you give him the ball, the better he gets. And it's going to be bad weather, you would assume, in Tennessee. I mean, maybe nicer than it would be in some other areas, but still relatively cold. And it's going to be physical. These are two hard-hitting teams, both tough teams. And I expect Derrick Henry to get about 30 carries, if not more than that. Um, And we'll probably see him play pretty well in the first half. And then he turn it up a notch in the second half. And a friend of mine mentioned this to me the other day. I want to shout out my friend Jack for mentioning this. He's so right on this. Whoever scores first in this game has such an edge more than any other game this weekend. Because both these teams want to play from with a lead. They don't want to play from behind. They want to play with a lead. If they can score first, they'll have a lead. And then they can run the ball. They don't have to worry about going down the field deep with their passing game to try and catch up. You want to score first. You want to put your stamp on the game early and then make the other team play outside of their style to try and and catch up to you. We know they're not going to throw the ball a whole lot with Ryan Tannehill, and we know Lamar Jackson wants to run the ball himself and also give it to his trio of backs. We don't want to see these quarterbacks throw the ball 30 or 40 times. They want to keep it in the teens and 20s in terms of throwing attempts. So whoever scores first has a chance to has the best chance to win. I think Tennessee will end up winning this game at home. Uh, I think they'll win it maybe by a field goal or so. It should be close, but... Uh, I just think Tennessee is slightly better, even though Baltimore, to me, is a scary team as well. All right, Chicago and the Saints. This is a CBS 440 game. It's also on Nickelodeon, so if you have young kids or you want to see how it is on Nickelodeon with the slime and everything else they're going to throw into the broadcast, go ahead and watch it there. I won't be watching. Uh, So to me, this game is going to be the biggest blowout that we have this weekend. I'm not sure there's a whole lot to talk about here. The Bears are an 8-8 playoff team. They had, at one point in the year, lost six in a row. It took two quarterback changes for this team to figure anything out. They had to start with Trubisky, then go to Nick Foles. He played pretty well for a little while. Then they went back to Trubisky. That's That started badly with that blowout loss to Green Bay on Sunday night. And then they won a bunch of games, and Trubisky played pretty well. And then Aaron Rodgers kicked their butt again last week, and the Bears finished 8-8. Eight and eight. So this team is not good. Uh, they have suspect quarterback play. They have decent weapons. Allen Robinson is there, and Jimmy Graham's pretty good, and there's not much else. They can run the ball decently well, and the defense is okay. Or maybe even, I would say, above average. But with such awful quarterback play, and Trubisky can be awful when he's not playing well, I just don't know how the Bears can stay in this game to keep it close. They have to go to New Orleans. It's hard to play in the Superdome there. And... The 12-4 and four Saints are playing about as well as anybody in the league. They've got an elite defense, I think the best in the NFC. Drew Brees is back, he's healthy, he's ready to go for his maybe his final playoff run. Kamara should play, Michael Thomas should return after a couple weeks off. I'm not sure they're going to keep this game uh, close, and, and I think that the Saints could win this potentially by three touchdowns or more. So that's what I'll say about that game. Not not too competitive, and I think that's it for the Bears. One, one playoff game and done. And then they have a really critical offseason ahead of them where they're going to have to figure out what the heck they want to do with quarterback. Do they want to re-sign Trubisky and run it back with the same guys? I doubt it. 
Do they want to draft somebody in the first round? I doubt it. Do they want to possibly make a run at Deshaun Watson if he does become available via trade? I heard that rumor earlier uh, in the day today. Maybe that's something they, they, are, they ultimately try and do. I'm not sure what the answer is, but the Bears have a lot more questions at this point than they do answers. So we'll see what happens for them. I don't think they win this game, and they probably get blown out. All right, final game I'm going to talk about. This is Sunday at 8.15 on NBC from Pittsburgh. It's the Steelers and Browns. Now, before I get into what might happen this weekend, I just have to say I feel terrible for the Browns, and I feel terrible for Kevin Stefanski, head coach of Cleveland, not being able to be out there for this game because he has covid I feel terrible. He has done such an amazing job with this team in about, I don't know, let's say four months. He's turned the Browns from 20-year joke to 11-5 and and making the playoffs. So congratulations to him. I think he's right at the top of the coach of the year balloting. I would would definitely consider voting for him if I had a vote. Uh, And it's just, it really stinks that he won't be out there for his team, but it's just the way it goes. Um, So... I think that the Browns are actually going to win this game when they play Pittsburgh. It'll be the second straight week they play each other. And although I don't feel great about either team, and I think this is sort of a toss-up, I just got a good feeling, or at least a better feeling, about what the Browns can do, even without their head coach and play caller. Pittsburgh this year has just been so bad since they lost their first game. I mean, they were 11-0, and even when they were 11-0 and winning... They, lost, they, they had won so many games, they were close against bad teams, and they just didn't look very impressive. And since then, they've lost 4 of 5. They're now 12 and 4 on the year. Ben Roethlisberger has looked pretty average recently. They can't run the ball. They've got injuries on defense. And receivers are dropping passes left and right. Pittsburgh looks like kind of a mess. And I know Cleveland has been the ultimate joke in the NFL for two decades, if not longer. But... They look like a team that sort of knows what it's doing. They're pretty well run and they're pretty uh, buttoned up every single weekend. Baker Mayfield has been sort of this point guard distributor quarterback this year where he's got a, a number of different weapons and he throws to all of them a bunch of different times each week. And they're led by a great running attack with Chubb and, and Kareem Hunt. And they've got the NFL's highest, highest rated offensive line. So that's how they win. They ground, they pound, and then they beat you over the top occasionally with Baker and the receivers. And I just don't see the Pittsburgh Steelers being able to match that. They can't run the ball. James Conner looks bad. The backups look like they don't have much juice in their legs to pick up the slack. And Roethlisberger looks like a tired old 38-year-old. Even though he didn't play last week, I'm not expecting much from him. I'm just not. I've seen a lot of Pittsburgh this year. I've watched most of their games. And I've never been impressed by almost anything that that they have done this entire season. I don't feel good about them. I feel like this is a team that's entering a transition period. And I love Mike Tomlin. And he's one of the best coaches in the NFL. But this team just isn't good enough. They had an awesome defense early. It struggled more recently. And the offense is pretty disappointing. It leaves you wanting a lot more each and every weekend. I don't really get that with the Browns. I know they're flawed, and I know Mayfield has some games where he looks terrible. And it's his first playoff game, so he may look bad this weekend. Who knows? But I just feel slightly better about them than I do uh, with the Steelers. So I'm going to take the Browns. No specific reason why, but I just I haven't seen much of Pittsburgh that makes me say, wow, this entire year. 
the strength of their team is supposed to be their defense and their wide receivers, and the receivers are dropping passes, and the defense hasn't been hasn't been that impressive. So, I don't know. I just I feel slightly better about the Browns. I'm going to pick them, and I think they'll advance to the divisional round. The two games for me, like I said, Browns and Steelers, Rams and Seahawks. I'm not really sure who's going to win. I just feel a little bit better about Seattle and Cleveland. The other games, I feel that I have a, a much more, uh, more much more insight on into. I think the Bills are far better than the Colts. They should win. I think Tampa is more talented than Washington, even though Washington has a great defensive front. I think Tennessee with Derrick Henry just puts them slightly over the top over Baltimore, and then the Saints are far better than the Bears. So those are my picks. Should be a really fun, super wildcard weekend, as they're calling it, with the six games. We've never seen anything like this before in the NFL. We're about to get a taste of it this weekend. So I uh, hope everybody can enjoy the games, watch them, uh, take it all in, because we've never seen something like this before, and you know, hopefully they keep this format in. Hopefully everybody seems to enjoy it and likes it and they continue going with it. But it's a nice change for the NFL because they've always had the same playoff format. They've really never altered anything. And this is this is cool. So hope it's a good wildcard weekend. And uh, we'll be right back to close out the episode with Noah's number one performer of the week. This episode of Schwartz on Sports is brought to you by Hoff and Pepper Hot Sauce. Handcrafted with farm fresh jalapenos and habaneros, Hoff's original hot sauce has gone on to win numerous awards and gain international recognition. Hoff and Pepper always strives to create sauces and seasonings that enhance flavors with balanced heat profiles. Every one of their handmade products is manufactured in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and is naturally vegan and gluten-free. Shop today at hoffandpepper.com, and when you enter promo code BELLYUP at checkout, you'll save 10% off your purchase. Hey all, here to wrap up SOS, episode number 13 here on the Belly Up Podcast Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else where you get the podcasts. So let's finish up this episode with Noah's number one performer of the week, and I think it's going to be someone that maybe you you all weren't expecting. It's actually going to be the third place finisher in the Heisman Trophy voting. Now, if you saw who won the Heisman a few days ago, it was announced that Alabama wide receiver Devontae Smith was was awarded the Heisman, and he has had an incredible season for the Crimson Tide. One of the best college wide receivers I've seen in years. And I've always said, and I said, I said this last year, and he's one of my favorite NFL players now, what Jerry Judy did the last couple of years for Alabama was unbelievable, but Devontae Smith absolutely blew him away this year in terms of his stats. Unfortunately, as good as Devontae was, and he was outstanding, he did not deserve the Heisman. Instead, who deserved it was his quarterback, Mac Jones. Mac Jones got all-time snubbed in this Heisman vote. I, I was I was shocked he didn't win it, and I think it's just disgraceful. Let me give you a stat for why I am so outraged by this decision to award Devontae Smith the best wide receiver in college football this year, the Heisman Trophy. So you can find this on my Twitter, too, because I tweeted it out the other day. So the best wide receiver a year ago in college football was Jamar Chase. LSU, he's going to enter the draft this year. He's going to be a top 10 pick, probably. In 14 games for the LSU Tigers a year ago, 14 games, 20 touchdowns, 84 catches for 1,780 yards. So 1780, 20, and 84 catches. Outstanding season. Best receiver in college football, and unfortunately, he opted out this year. 
would have been arguably the best receiver in college again this season. The Heisman winner last year went to Joe Burrow, Jamar's quarterback. And if you look at the Heisman rankings, the the vote totals, Jamar is not even in the top 10. Burrow was one, and you can go all the way down the list up to number 10, where Tua Tagovailoa finished. Jamar Chase is nowhere to be found. This year, if you go to Devontae's stats, and I'll read them off for you, in 12 games so far for Bama, 105 catches, 20 touchdowns as well, and 1,641 yards. So slightly less on the yardage, same amount of touchdowns. And yet Devontae Smith gets the Heisman Trophy? It makes no sense. How can a guy with almost identical stats win the Heisman when last year that same player or a guy with the same stats in terms of you know the production they were putting up didn't even finish in the top 10? It makes no sense to me. So I, I don't understand it. I love Jamar Chase and I love Devontae Smith. But to me, it's very hard to give a Heisman to a receiver. I think you've got to give it to the quarterbacks. This should be mostly a quarterback slash running back award. I'm not really sure how receivers can ultimately win this. And if you look at the stats that Mac Jones put up this year for the best team in college football, the undefeated Crimson Tide, going to play for a national title on Monday against Ohio State. In his 12 games, he's completed 77% of his passes. That's ridiculous. Over 4,000 yards. And then touchdown to interception ratio, 36 to 4. Wow. To me, Mac Jones was the obvious winner. He did not deserve to, not, he, didn't even come, he shouldn't even come in, in third. I mean, he should have been the, the winner. He came in third. Trevor Lawrence finished ahead of him in the vote totals. So I just think it's a joke. I don't understand how you can give the Heisman to a guy when, when, when someone with almost the same numbers as him last year didn't finish in the top 10. And then Trevor Lawrence, a guy who didn't put up as good number as good of numbers, and someone who had COVID missed a couple games, how that guy can finish ahead of Mac Jones. It's it's disgraceful. I'm a Mac Jones fan. I think he's gonna be a good NFL quarterback. I'm not sure if he'll be a superstar, but I think he'll definitely be productive. Uh, but he got snubbed terribly this past weekend. And I hope he shows everyone on the national stage just how special he is on Monday against the Buckeyes when they play for the national title. So my number one performer of the week is Mac Jones. It's really the number one performer of the season is Mac Jones because he's had an unbelievable junior year, and I think he's going to win the national championship uh, on Monday night. So he's my performer of the week. All right, that's going to wrap up episode number 13. I appreciate everyone listening. Hope everyone has had a nice start to the new year and that everyone is safe from COVID, uh, safe from all the riots and everything else going on in our country today. It's kind of a crazy time. We're going to have a new president uh, very soon. So it's a little strange, definitely not the type of 2021 start that maybe we were all hoping for following last year, but we still have a long time for it to get better. And the sports we have this weekend coming up should help contribute to that, uh, to that positivity. Six NFL games, season, MLB offseason, college football, national title game Monday. There's a lot to be excited about in the sports world. So Hopefully we can all stay glued to that and watching our TVs for what's to come. Hope everybody has an enjoyable weekend, and I will see you all next time here on Schwartz on Sports.